see on the screen, our text for today is John 3, chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. If you would turn there with me, please. It's probably one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. At least the middle verse there. Many people that are do not go to church, do not profess faith in Christ. I do not want anything to do with Christianity can recite that verse, can they not? It's, it's everywhere. You see signs everywhere. John 3.16. Well, today we're going to look at that. A little background. In the Gospel of John, John introduces Christ Jesus as the Word of God made flesh in chapter 1. In chapter 2, John records the first of eight signs recorded in this Gospel, which is the turning of water into wine. He tells us also of Jesus going to Jerusalem and how Jesus clears the temple. Jesus is doing many miraculous things that unfortunately attract the attention of the wrong people. Puts him in the spotlight. With the religious leaders of his day. And namely in this context, in the spotlight of Nicodemus. So Nicodemus takes it upon himself. You know, I don't know. People argue whether Nicodemus was left this meeting converted or whether he did. We 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 don't know. Frankly, I don't think the Bible tells us. Um, he, we know he heard the gospel. For whatever reason, he takes it upon himself to go to Jesus. Probably, he didn't have ill an ill will because he he was kind of afraid of his peers, so he went at night. But he goes to Jesus and he inquires as to what's going on. What, you know, what's taking place? What does all this mean? You know, rather than answer his question, Jesus takes him to the very heart of the gospel. So it doesn't matter what all this is going on. Let, let me tell you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so what was being, what was taking place? The kingdom of God was being manifest publicly because the king himself was here. But these religious leaders didn't understand that. They couldn't see it. Why? They were not born again. Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Jesus reveals to Nicodemus God's wonderful plan of salvation, things that must take place in order to make it possible. For God's people to be saved. Not possible. In order to save God's people. He, he tells Nicodemus. This, this, this thing must take place. You must be born again. And, and this is not physical birth. This cannot happen outside the work of God the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual birth Nicodemus. You can't do it. It's not because your mother gave birth to you. It's a work of God. And only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our passage today, which is the very heart of the gospel message, reveals what God will accomplish to bring about the salvation of his people. It's my hope and prayer here today that we will 
see our sin for what it is, vile, and that we will see Christ for who he is, the, the wonderful Savior that was lifted up on our behalf. And that we will be changed eternally by the Holy Spirit. Either for our salvation or for our continued sanctification. Our continued formation into Christ's likeness. And all this for the praise and the glory of our triune God. May Jesus Christ, our King, be praised forever. Amen. So let's read, starting in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, but he, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We are helpless to understand this and apply it in our lives unless you attend it with the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you send it forth now both your word and your spirit to accomplish your good pleasure in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. May you be glorified in this process. In Christ I pray. Amen. So first we see Jesus saying, telling Nicodemus basically uh, the plan of redemption. <laughs> How, what must take place for God's people and he, and he parallels this to, to an Old Testament incident that happened in the wilderness with the children of Israel. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, most of you are probably familiar with that story, but we're going to look at it real close. If you turn to Numbers chapter 21, I know Pastor Thomas had in passing mentioned this last Lord's Day. But we will take a closer look at what was going on, what took place. The children of Israel had been rescued by God uh, from slavery out of Egypt. They had rebelled against him continually, even after he showed great signs. And so, uh, because they refused to go into the promised land when they were sitting there on the borders and said, you know what, this generation is not going in. You come wander in the desert until all of you are dead, and your children will go in and take the land that I gave them. So this is taking place during that wandering now. This is one of the ways in which God fulfills his word to them. Numbers chapter 21, starting verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food nor water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. So 
so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? At least in our modern ears today. You know, we, we have very little sense in our society of what's right and what's wrong. We have very little respect for authority, let alone God's authority. You know, God's name is, is thrown about as a profanity just constantly. You know, even as Christians, sometimes we, we have become so desensitized to it that, that it doesn't slap us in the face every time we hear it now. That's not anything new we see in this passage of the Old Testament. You know, I, you know, people think, and I've heard people say, you know, if we were there, if I was one of those Israelites, I wouldn't have rebelled against it. He parted the Red Sea. I mean, I saw it with my eyes. I guarantee you, you would be right along with that rebellious crowd. That sin nature in the human beings. Unless God intervened on your behalf, you would be rebelling along with the rest of the nation. They had become impatient and grumbled against God and against Moses. They loathed the manna that God was providing them and called it worthless food. That's one thing to, to not be satisfied with provisions, but to loathe something that sustains your very life. How about those who hate God? The very one that, of, that gives them life. The very one that keeps them alive. Gives them every breath. And those breath that he gives them, they use to curse them. If you think God's not merciful, think again. God had miraculously brought them out of Egypt. You know, the, the plagues. He subdued Pharaoh. And he made low the gods of the Egyptians through these plagues. Saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Your gods can't help you. When I say do something, you do it. And Israel, they saw this. They saw these signs and wonders that God performed through Moses and Aaron. But as soon as they got out of Egypt, they started crying again. Why have you brought us here and stuck us by the Red Sea and now we're pinned in by the Egyptians and they're going to kill us? Couldn't we die just as well in Egypt? Why do we have to walk out here and die? But what did God do? Once again, miraculously, parts the Red Sea. Now I don't love men there to see that. And they walk through on dry land. And if that's not enough, he allows, God allows the Egyptian army to pursue Israel and then destroys them in the sea by drowning them. So God not only saves Israel, the people of Israel, not a nation yet, the people of Israel, but he kills and destroys the army that's pursuing them. 
Wow. Wouldn't that be enough to be grateful for? I mean, look at the wonderful song that they sang on the banks, on the far bank. It was a wonderful praise to God. How long did that last? Not very long. They finally make it to, to Mount Sinai. God manifests himself in thick smoke cloud and, and thunderings and lightnings. And there, <coughs> he officially forms them as a nation. A theocracy. Under him, God is ruled. <coughs> and he gives them a law, a moral law, to set them apart from the people around them. And he gives them, of course, war, um, worship laws and civic laws to make them different from the people around them. It's no different today. Are we to be different than those around us? Can those around you tell that you're different? We don't have to wear all the same color clothes and grow long beards and wear big hats, drive buggies. To be different. But you're different in how you think. How your mind, your, your Christian worldview, how your mind processes those things that go on around you. How you react to these things. What you think, what you say, what you do, both in private and in public. We are called to be different. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewing through the word of God. Israel was called to be different. And God miraculously provided one. I mean, if you, I know most of you, if not all of you, I hope, have read through the Bible at least once. If you read this entire story of Israel's history, you would read that God not only provided food and water for them miraculously, you know, the water from the rock, the, the quail that came in, the, the manna every day, except for on the Sabbath. I mean, he did this miraculously. He made it so that they didn't get sick. He made it so that their clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. They're wandering in the desert. Now, I spent months in the desert. And, you know, you get back, it's time for a new pair of boots. And they were in the, the wilderness for 40 years. And, and miraculously, their clothing and shoes did not wear out. This is God's doing, we're told in the scriptures. And yet... These people were ungrateful. So what was the great sin here? They loathed the manna. Well, there's some typology here going on in this passage. Jesus, in the sixth chapter of John, likens himself to the manna, does he not? So just as these people in the wilderness loathed this heavenly food, so the Jews of Jesus, they loathed him. In other words, they're rejecting the Messiah. God was wrathful with them. So he sent a form of, some people say punishment, some people say chastisement. I'm going to use the chastisement, I think, because it has its desired effect.
But we must never, never mistake God's patience for weakness or indifference. People look at some of these stories and say, well, why did God let this go on so long? Why does it praise God he let it go on so long? Look at my life. If God were to uh, have a knee-jerk reaction every time I sinned, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't exist. I wouldn't exist. He would this, this God that knows everything would say, well, why even let him be born? I'm going to just destroy him anyways. Right? But God's merciful. And God has a plan. God would have been justified in destroying the nation of Israel. Uh, he would have been justified in destroying Adam and Eve. But that was not his plan. He, he told Moses that, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to destroy this nation and make a nation out of you. And that wasn't an empty threat. That was to cause Moses to pour out his heart and intercede on their behalf, which he did. And God honored Moses' intercession and did not destroy Israel. These snakes. Now, I, don't get wrapped up in the actions of what kind of snake it is. I mean, I, you know, a lot of you hear this discussion of people go off, you know, this is a certain kind of snake that bites you. I did some research when I prepared this sermon. And let it be safe to say, I wouldn't want to get by any of the snakes in that region. None of them. Okay. I don't personally like snakes. And the majority of snakes in that region are nasty. They have a very... Well, they're, they do very much harm if you get bit by them. Okay? So we're not worried about what kind of snakes they were. They're deadly snakes. They were called fiery serpents probably because of the effect of venom. Pogwitz is an extremely painful burning sensation. I, I read that about several of the species of snakes over there, and that makes sense. Scripture tells us that the bites were deadly. Many people were bitten, and they died. Pretty much getting bitten by one of those snakes was a death sentence. We didn't have anti-venom serum back then. A snake bite kits like we have today. Hospitals on every, you know, in every city. They were in the wilderness. But God uses this plague of snakes to kill the nation, right? No. He uses this plague of snakes to bring them to repentance. Now, if God was just dead set on punishing he would wipe them out. But he sends chastisement on his people to bring them to repentance. You know, a lot of times we find ourselves under the frowning providence of God in our lives, do we not? How often do we think of that as a chastisement? How often does that cause us to examine ourselves more closely? Not saying every element is a chastisement of God. I'm not saying every trouble and trial you have in your life is a chastisement of God. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it should cause us to examine ourselves, to make sure, is God calling me to repent of something in my life? 
I've been struggling with that. I've been struggling physically for a while. And so, don't think that thought has not frequently crossed my mind. What am I doing wrong? Or am I doing something wrong? It's a, it's a way to self-examine. And, and you know, Israel, they finally came to their senses. They came crawling, running, crying, whatever, to Moses. We have sinned. Basically, we have sinned against God and we have sinned against you. We have talked bad about God and we have talked bad about you. Pray for us that God would forgive us and heal us and rid us of the snakes. And so Moses, being the man of God that he is, and, and having also already shown his love for this people, even though he was impatient with them, he prays. He prays to God. He asks God to remove the serpents. But God says no. God says, I have a different plan. More of this typology coming in. Right. He says, no, what I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to make a likeness of one of those snakes. Make a likeness of those snakes and put it on a pole. And put it in a higher position that where anybody in the camp is bit by one of these snakes, they can look at that, and if they look, they will be healed. They will live. And we see in the text that it was just as the Lord said, whoever was bitten and looked at that bronze serpent lifted up on the pole, lived. Now there was no magic in that snake. That bronze serpent. There's no magic in it. Later on, the nation of Israel will actually get in trouble for idolizing that serpent on the pole. There was nothing in intrinsically in the snake, in the brass serpent, or the pole that it was lifted on, if it was a cross or whatever, that was magical. God granted healing. Because the people that looked at the snake on the pole looked at it because one, God told them to, and two, they believed God would heal them. So it was a look of faith. They had come to Moses in a repentant spirit. Repentance, right? And then the remedy was a look of faith. And it worked. Interestingly, it was the very thing that was killing the people that God used the likeness of to heal them. Now, if you read in John Gill's commentary, he goes into all these comparisons between these two passages, and I'm not going to take the time to do that today. <coughs> I will point out several that I believe are important. And you know, a lot of people sometimes not a lot of people. Some people can get very into um, typology in places where it's not needed. Okay, there, there's some. There's a lot of typology in this passage, but it's. I think the important part is what Christ explains and what we know from the rest of scriptures. People who looked at the sermon acknowledged their sins. And the serpents 
represented God's wrath, right? And the venom represented their sin. And what does sin always lead to? Death. And so God put up a serpent on a pole and told Moses to put a serpent up on a pole that represented his wrath and his mercy. For you see, that brown serpent on the pole contained no venom. It contained no venom. It was a picture of God's wrath and a symbol of his mercy. As they looked ahead, the Messiah would come to save his people. And so Jesus, in his encounter with Nicodemus, now we're back in John chapter 3. draws a parallel between that Old Testament account and God's plan for salvation. Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I've already mentioned the typology here. As we see throughout the Bible, I will say this, the types are never even close to being like the, the anti-type. They are just a shadow, a taste. In both cases, both in the New in this passage and back in Numbers, death is threatening the sinner. In both cases, the remedy is that something or someone must be lifted up. And in both cases, all who look in faith at the lifted up object or person will live. Sinners who were physically dying looked at a bronze serpent and received physical healing. In repentance and faith, they obeyed God and were healed. Sinners who looked to Christ Jesus in repentance and faith are given spiritual life, and that life is eternal. Here, Jesus is telling Nicodemus what must happen to the Christ in order for God's people to be saved. Jesus is telling about how he, the promised seed, will accomplish salvation by crushing whose head? The serpent. The serpent's head. And yet how he will die so that sinners who look to him in repentance and faith will be forgiven of their sins and will receive eternal life. Jesus is preaching the gospel to Nicodemus. And I pray to God that Nicodemus got it. I pray to God that God himself intervened on Nicodemus' behalf. Because that's the only way anyone has any hope. God's intervention Notice that Jesus says this is a must. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus' death on the cross did not provide a way of salvation. Jesus' death on the cross provided the only way of salvation. 
There's a big distinction to be made there. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make salvation possible. He died on the cross to make salvation happen for his people. It is a sure thing that sinners who come to faith in Christ Jesus will be saved. That's the promise of God's word. And that invitation goes to everyone. But it's a conditional invitation. It requires repentance. Jesus says of himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. God's word declares unashamedly that there is salvation in no other. And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. He is the only hope for dying sinners. And that brings us to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a wonderful promise that is. And how misused that verse is so much in our day. For starters, it's debated whether or not Jesus is still speaking to Nicodemus here. You know, or is this John summing up what was said? You know, and I'm not going to fault you if you have a red letter version of the Bible. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But let me tell you this. I think I can say this with all authority from the Word of God. The red letters do not carry any more authority or weight than the black letters. The words that Jesus speaks from his very mouth are the same words that are written in the rest of Scripture. Because all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Word of Christ is no less authoritative than the Word of the Father and no more authoritative than the, than the Word of the Holy Spirit. Because it's one word. Jesus is that word. So we can say Jesus is saying Whether he physically spoke this to Nicodemus or not, he's saying it to us through his written word. This verse is used by the universalist to bolster their belief that in the end, what? Everyone goes to heaven. I mean, it just says here, if God is loving, he loved the whole world, the whole world's going to be in heaven, right? They completely have to ignore the second part of the verse. They have to ignore the conditional clause in this verse because there is a condition. And of course, there are those that say this is a proof text that Jesus died for everybody and thereby making salvation possible to anyone. And I'm not going to crush your cookies and say that I can look at any of you and say, no, salvation is not possible for you. If you're still alive and breathing, you still have a chance to obey God's command and repent of your sins and believe the gospel. That's the condition. You have to accept Christ on his terms, not on yours. 
The true meaning of this text is this. God offers a universal gospel call to all mankind. So that his elect will hear and be born again. There is a condition in this verse. Belief in Jesus is that condition. God's love is not some magic potion poured out on the entire world, thus saving everybody. God's saving love is not on every street corner, therefore taken by anyone who gets a whim to do so. So we must explore a little deeper the saving love of God. William Hendrickson he postulates that, that what this verse is portraying is the infinite love of God. So he says, he talks about the character of this love, the author of this love, um, the object of this love, the gift of this love. So we have the character of this love. He writes, the word so, for God so loved the world, the word so, by reason of what follows, must be interpreted as indicating in such an infinite degree and in such a transcendently glorious manner. The tense used in the original shows that God's love in action, reaching back to eternity and coming to fruition in Bethlehem and at Calvary, is viewed as one great central fact. That love was rich and true, full of understanding, tenderness, and majesty. End quote. This love transcends everything else. God's love transcends human emotions. God's love transcends even our sin, does it not? This is a wonderful, unstoppable love. Because this is the very character and nature of who God is. The author of this love... Well, right there in the text, we see it's God the Father. God the Father. And I would submit to you, it's the triune God. Because it was the triune God that, that covenanted together in eternity past. You know, they came together with this great covenant of redemption. Not that there were three different ideas or three different arguments, but one God. God is one essence. And his will is one. There's not three separate wills in the Godhead. But the author of this love is God the Father, as we see in, in here. For God so loved the world. How do we know it's God the Father? Because he sent his only begotten Son. In his perfect love in eternity past, God the Father covenanted to love a particular people and to send his only begotten Son to rescue them. God's holy word tells us We've just been through this recently. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. We see that God, in eternity past, predestined us to be recipients of his saving love. 
again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. That was a, a decision of God in eternity past that he would save a lost people. Then we have the object of this love. Well, it says the world. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean everybody in the planet? Is that what the world means? Does that mean the planet itself? Remember the, the, the hymn we sang this morning, Joy to the World. Where, where does God's love go to? Where does this, this, this grace go to? Far as the curse is found. That means all of creation is under the curse of our sin. That's why I don't believe that the aliens exist in other planets and that God would ever allow them to come here if they did. Because they would be entering the curse, right? But they're part of creation. So they're already cursed. And, and, and we're not going to go into why I don't believe in aliens, but uh, anyways. The object of this love is not Mars necessarily or some un, or some inhabited planet by some alien race somewhere else. The world, terra firma, earth, and its inhabitants. The term world means fallen humanity in its international aspect, not in its universal aspect. That's where the definition needs to be, clarification needs to be made there. World here is in its international aspect, not in its universal aspect. And I say that because we have a, a wonderful revelation of that in the book of Revelation. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people. But I said God has a people and every people group within every people group. And that's why Christ commanded, go to the ends of the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Because I have a people there. And they must hear this gospel. And they will be saved. And the gift of this love is God's only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one who was sent as a gift to live the life that we're supposed to live but cannot and will not. A perfectly righteous, obedient life. He did that. He accomplished that for us. And he was also sent to die the death that we deserve, that we should die. The sinner's death under the wrath of God. But he did that. He did that on our behalf. He did that for God's people. And what is the purpose of this love? This love has a purpose. To give life to all who savingly believe in God's only begotten Son. And even there's a condition, right? We can say that, well, you said all. No, I said all who believe. Not all people to hear the gospel believe. 
And we know this because the Bible clearly teaches there's a hell. And there are many who reject and forsake God, forsake Christ. Many of the Jews in Christ's own day are burning in hell right now for the rejection of the Messiah. But our rejection is no worse, no better. It's still rejecting Christ. And I, but he, they were in person with him. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we have the entirety of Scripture. We are completely without excuse. Completely and totally without excuse. And so I would argue our rejection is worse. But that's my personal belief. That's not, I'm not going to argue that for Scripture. The passage continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Interestingly enough, in this first part, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Yet. Because he will. Mm -hmm. Later, in the future, maybe the near future, maybe the distant future, I don't know. But when Christ returns, he's not coming back as the suffering servant. He's not coming back to wash your feet. He's not coming back to, to preach the gospel, to offer salvation to those who will believe. He's not coming back for that. He's coming back to judge, jury, an executioner of all unbelievers. And he's coming back as our Lord and King, reigning in glory for us believers. So it's a day we look forward to. But it's a day that you don't want to be on the wrong side. Because you're not looking forward to that if you're not a believer. But at this time, when Christ came the first time, he was not sent to condemn the world. He was sent on a mission of salvation to save God's people. He had a purpose. And once again, there's a conditional statement that verse 18, whoever believes is not condemned. God loved the world so much that he made the way of salvation for his people. That is where we hit the wall with many folks. God provided one way for salvation and only one way. You know, around 9-11, some of you are too young to remember that, I guess. Some of, most of you remember that. After 9-11 happened, there was this whole coming together movement. You know, let's, let's all come together and, and you know, and, We'll all pray in God's name and you call him whoever you want, just don't call him Christ. Publicly, right? Remember that? Mm -hmm. No, there's not a lot of different ways. Even some major supposed Christians have conceded on this point. Some big name, well-known supposed Christians have conceded on this point. I saw, I, I, I don't remember who the 
other people were there was a Catholic priest and some other supposed Christian ministers being interviewed on this show. What might have been Larry King. And, and I'm sad to say, the only one that actually presented even a picture of the gospel was Catholic priest. And these others? They're supposed to be Protestants. Well, you know, I can't really say that Jesus is the only way. You know? Well, he can't say that, but God's word says that. The Bible unashamedly declares that Jesus is the only way. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. But really, it matters. But it doesn't change God's reality if you don't. It doesn't. Who are we? Puny little created beings. And we tell God, no, your way is the wrong way. And it's not possible. It must be my way. Well, if it's my way, it's a broad way. And we know where that leads. But we're we're, we're told this, this... Phenomena is explained also to us in Scripture. You know, Romans chapter 1, the foolish hearts are darkened. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That's where people run into the wall. It just doesn't make sense that if there's only one way, why would that one way include a bloody Roman cross? Why couldn't he come in power and glory and just take over everything and usher in the new kingdom? You know, the church tried that in the dark ages, did it not? Did that work? No, because it wasn't God's plan. Dr. Sprawl asks a question. The late Dr. Sprawl asks a question and then explains. He says... Are you one who gets angry when he hears there's only one way to God? See, the question is not why is there only one way, but why is there even one way? You know, he also made the statement, you know, people ask, why doesn't God save everybody? And Dr. Frost says, the question is not that, but why does God save anybody? Really, if you look at our sinfulness, Dr. Sproul continues, the answer to that question is that God loved the world enough to create a way. However, he didn't love the world enough to say that we can't ignore the way. End quote. He loved us enough to provide the way. But his love doesn't go past that. He doesn't love us enough to say we can ignore that way. And I agree with Dr. Strong on that point. Because verse 18 starts out with this conditional statement. Once again, once again, the condition is that you must believe in God's only Son. But that's not where verse 18 ends. Verse 18 doesn't end on that conditional high note. But, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're not awaiting condemnation. You are condemned now. And there's only one way to get out from under that condemnation. And you're condemned already because, he says, he has not believed in the name of the only 
begotten Son of God. So if the first part of that verse doesn't make that condition clear, it makes it crystal clear at the end of the verse. If you want this life, believe in the Son. If you don't believe in the Son, you're condemned already. Why? Because you didn't believe in the Son. Plain and simple. It's not that hard to comprehend. There's one way, one choice. Respond to the gospel the way God commands you or perish. It's that simple. We must, we often wonder, why would anybody refuse to look to Christ in repentance and faith? Why? Why would anyone willingly choose to perish in their sin? But John has the answer to that for us in the next couple of verses. This is not. See, we love John 3.16, but not a lot of people like to go past that and read the next few verses. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. People love darkness rather than light. These people are condemned because they choose not to see their sin. They choose to live in darkness, thinking futilely, with a futilely, thinking wrongly. <laughs> I can say that word. That their sins are hidden. But what does the Bible say about darkness to God? Darkness is light. God sees through that. You can't hide your sins. You're condemned already. They are spiritually dead and will remain that way until or unless God intervenes. Notice in the account that we looked at in Numbers, it does not say that everyone was bitten looked at the bronze serpent. But it says everyone that was bitten who looked at the bronze serpent was healed. And that's the same condition that we have in John 3.16. Look to the Son and live. As Brother Ryan prayed, kiss the Son, lest he should be mad and angry. It is only when God regenerates the lost and grants them the gift of repentance and faith that they will look to Christ. And so when we pray for our lost loved ones, we ask what? We ask God to save them. Because in our prayers, we know that salvation is completely and totally a work of God. And it's impossible for the lost to come to Christ and be saved unless God makes it possible. So there's, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard an Arminian pray otherwise. At, at least on our knees, we, we say the same things, right? Please, God, save my lost children. Save my lost family members. Save my lost neighbor. Because we know that salvation is the work of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is a statement of fact that we end the chapter with. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And that says explicitly 
Yes, there's a day of wrath coming, but you're already under wrath. But you will see that come to fruition on Judgment Day. We are all like those Israelites, writhing in the desert, in pain, waiting for certain death. Just as the deadly snake venom coursed through their veins, resulting in death, so too we had the deadly venom of sin coursing through every part and parcel of us. And sin always, always, always brings death. Friend, dear one, don't come to the end of your life like that. Flee the wrath that remains on you. Flee to the Savior. Repent of your sins. In repentance, look to the one who was lifted up so that justice could be served. Look to Christ Jesus who paid the debt you owe. Look to the one who lived and died to save sinners. Look to Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In faith, look to the crucified Christ. The one who died was buried and three days later rose forth from the grave in power and victory. Believe that he died for you and now ever lives to intercede on your behalf. Believe that he is the only way to salvation. That you are right with God only through Jesus Christ. Live in the newness of life he gives for the glory of God. To the precious saints of the living God, those of you who are believers already, the God that manifested his infinite love on your behalf is worthy of all praise. In light of what he has done for you and I, I exhort you with these familiar words of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Continue to look in repentance and faith to the one who was lifted up on your behalf. Live your life for his glory. Boldly, yet humbly and lovingly, share the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call sinners to repentance and faith. Jesus died for you. Live for him. I close with the words penned by Philip Bliss. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love to me. He from death to life has brought me, Son of God, with him to be. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and set me free. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your glorious plan of salvation. Thank you for its accomplishment. 
Thank you for the promises of your word that tell us that as sinners, if we will look to Christ in repentance and faith, we will be saved. I pray that you would make that a reality of every heart here today. And Father, for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, Father, would you continue to grant us the gift of repentance? Would you continue to strengthen our faith? Would you continue to make us into the likeness of Christ for your glory? And for the good of your church, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you'd stand and we'll sing together hymn number 681.